Before I get through with you, you will have a clear case for divorce. And so will my wife. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 61, Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Scardino. Hello, friends. This is Noah Diamond, the man who licked his weight in wild caterpillars. And as always, I'm here with the man who stuffed spaghetti with bicarbonate of soda, Matthew Conium. Hello, Matthew. How are things on your side of the Atlantic? Uh, they're very well, and that's all I've got to say on the matter. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. I think it's probably <laughs> best that way. Um, and also in the room and liable to unmute and chime in at any moment or to mute the rest of us and bend the show to his whim is the man who used to dance in a flea circus, our producer and editor, Bob Gassell. Bob, are you there? Well, that depends who you ask. <laughs> and boys, we have a very special guest this episode. A guest so accomplished that I could easily spend the entire episode introducing him. I'm going to try not to do that, but just to give you the briefest summary. As a performer, our guest already had numerous Broadway and film credits when he appeared in the now legendary 1972 Toronto production of Godspell, along with just about every funny Canadian you can think of. Four years later, he returned to the role of Jesus in the original Broadway cast. He continued to appear on Broadway as well as in some now classic films and many television series before beginning a very distinguished career as a director. He was the artistic director of Playwrights Horizons in the 1990s, directed films like Advice from a Caterpillar and The Incredible Burt Wonderstone, Broadway productions like A Few Good Men and Lennon, the long list of television shows he's directed includes Law and Order, The West Wing, Two Broke Girls, Young Sheldon, Only Murders in the Building, and 30 Rock, on which he also served as a producer and for which he won consecutive Emmy Awards. Among his current projects is the film Riding Shotgun, going into production after the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes are resolved. Here he is, the one, the only, Don Scardino. Thank you so much for being with us, Don. Thank you. And then he died. Uh, <laughs> Let's at least get through the episode first. He was with us a minute ago. Uh, um, you know, after hearing all that, you know, it's just like, oh, I, I, can, I can expire now. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> leave this veil of tears. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. To ha- just, I'll tell you the truth, just to hear you say at the beginning to name the Marx Brothers and put Scardino at the end of it, not only does it does it make my heart flutter, but, you know, my grandfather, may he rest in peace, would be absolutely over the moon. Uh, Chico was a favorite of his because my grandfather was from Sicily and spoke very little English, uh, but he understood Chico. And I said, I said to him, you know, you know he's not Italian, right, Grandpa? He said, no, he, he's Italian. Listen to him, he's Italian. Listen to him. <laughs> okay. They're brothers, Dad. They're brothers. Okay, never mind. Uh, <laughs> well, a question that comes up sometimes now when we talk about the Marx Brothers is, you know, is is Chico offensive now? You know, do would, would Italian people take umbrage at his characterization? There's a there's a no vote on that count. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, first of all, that that particular trope of Italian, I talk like this and do that. Uh, you know, it is so ingrained. I don't know anybody takes offense any anymore. Uh, you know, I mean, we're going to shut down the Godfather. You know, I mean, do mutes have a, are offended by uh, anyone who's actually mute or 
as if this called dumb, which now wouldn't be appropriate at all, but are, are those, uh, would they be offended? Uh, They've never said anything. You know, I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> you did, Bob. <laughs> All they could complain about there is, is appropriation, isn't it? In terms of the actual characterization, he's so resourceful and so uh, uncompromised by that factor that uh, it, it can only be a positive, I think. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, and it, it's a double whammy because the fellow who played him in your show, I'll say she is, was, was British as well. That's right, Matt so Roper. So not only, yeah, so he was kind of two times appropriating. But but it's um, it's it's so much a part of Chico's charm, probably in life as well, but it's so much a part of Chico's charm as a character uh, that I, I can't even see how you would how you would object or, or how you could divorce it from that, you know, in any way. I've never actually heard anyone object. I've only heard people yeah. wonder if there are objections. I think um, well, there's a certain amount of I haven't talked to my grandfather. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So people sort of watch older comedies now with one eye on potential red flags. What's problematic now? Um, yeah. uh, so the question comes up. I guess the question, too, is what isn't problematic now? I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. You know, I... I I'm I'm all for you know uh, everything we talk about in terms of diversity and and bringing people in who have been marginalized or left out of the process, whatever category they work in, whether it's before the camera, behind the camera, where but in the arts can you really you know point at least point to some success over the years of having been diverse, the arts more than anywhere else, but you know it's it's funny which like when when I was producing a television show called New Amsterdam. And there was a character, uh, you know, and we tried to stay very true to, if you know, someone's ethnic background, if the character was written as that ethnic background. But when we got to a character who's a guest player who was a Gulf War veteran, and it was suggested to me that we actually get Gulf War veteran actors, I, I you know, I had to do a triple take and a spit take because it was like, well, so then, I mean, if if the next week we have someone who's like a serial killer do we need to find an actual serial killer so we don't offend the other serial killers out there it was, it was taken to a point of ludicrousness anyway but i digress still still on that on that digression though i um, just just to, to shoehorn this in um i i enjoy a reputation which is not unfounded for knowing very very little about anything made in the last say three quarters of a century however as a rare exception to that, my wife and I both enjoy uh, Two Broke Girls very much, and we watch it on Fridays. At the, at the end of our working week, it's kind of exactly the right uh, closer. And um, we, we're into that, I think it's like the fourth season now, really enjoying it, seeing your name come up a few times. Um, but then um, when, I, when I Googled it, I was amazed to see that there were actually uh, quite, quite a few complaints about that in terms of stereotyping and so on. When, when it's so obviously over the top and, and joyous and celebratory, I was, I was stunned. Yes, and deliberately so. I mean, you know, like, like the Marx Brothers, um, Michael Patrick King is a great one when he does comedy for poking uh, at, you know, poking the bear at people who either take themselves too seriously or the power structure or, you know, the same sort of targets that the Marx Brothers used to hit as well. There's an anarchic sort of bent to his comedy and, um, you know, and, and he's um, um, a gay man in his mid-50s or now maybe more. Uh, but And, he, you know, it was he perfectly comfortable because he felt marginalized at maybe poking fun at everybody. Um and, and brilliantly so. Um, you know, there's a great there's a great comic 
structure to that show because basically what he did was they said he, he said we're going to have to take these two women and make one of them and write one of them as if we were writing a man mm-hmm. be everything except without you know without sexuality of her being a man she's a she's very much female and that was Kat Denning's mm. character but we're going to write her as if it was you know her name was Max we're going to write her as if Max is a guy and uh, and the dynamic then that happened between Beth and and Kat it was really uh, it was rife for comedy you know it just really worked um, that was a lot of fun to do Don, we always ask our guests to tell us their Marx Brothers origin story. Um, how did you first encounter them? How did you first become a fan? And uh, when and where did that meeting take place? Uh, you know, my dad, who was uh, a bass player, a band leader, and actually started in vaudeville. And um, um, he and Connie Stevens, I remember Connie Stevens, but Connie Stevens, cookie, cookie, lend me your comb. Uh, Connie Stevens' father named Ted Ingolia, Italian, and uh, my father Scardino, and they 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 uh, started a, a comedy act in vaudeville, and it was sort of like if you think of the kind of the, an Italian Smothers Brothers, mm-hmm. only they figured they wouldn't get anywhere with their Italian name, so they called themselves the Stevens Boys or Stevens Brothers, something like that. Uh, my dad was Sid Stevens, even though his name was Charlie Scardino. Anyway. So he was he was he was a huge vaudeville fan, and he had um, uh, talked about his vaudeville sort of heroes. And um, um, Gallagher Sheen uh, was one, and of course uh, one act, and uh, Jack Benny, who he, he saw perform live a lot, and he became Die in the World Jack Benny fan. And he had seen uh, the Marx Brothers on stage. So when I was growing up, even little, uh, and the Marx Brothers movies were being shown on TV. And at that point, we had gone out of radio. The radio went out the door. I was born in 48. The radio went out the door when I was about five. And the little TV came in on a big radio you know, cabinet with a little TV on the top in the middle of it all. And um, so whenever Jack Benny, and then when the Marx Brothers came in, my dad was quick to point out that as great as they were, that they were being influenced by Gallagher and Sheen, who he had seen on, on vaudeville, uh, in vaudeville. Um, um, so that was my first, very first exposure. And then uh, I have older brothers, and my brother Dave was really crazy for the Marx Brothers. And so when I was about, I don't know, it's like pre-teens, I'm not sure exactly what, but in Manhattan there was, um, and I've been trying to remember, because I knew you'd ask this question, whether it was the Carnegie Hall Cinema or the Elgin down on 8th, uh, 9th Avenue or 8th Avenue, or I couldn't remember, or Uptown at the Thalia, but there was a Marx Brothers festival and Dave dragged me to them. I think I'm about 12 or 13, I'm not sure. So we went and we saw them all in, in great succession. And then of course, you know, I'm a child of the 60s because I'm 75 years old. Um, you know, and they became real counterculture heroes in the 60s and then everything was looked at again through the lens of of that. You know, Duck Soup became this powerful anti-war statement. and. And all that. So that's it. But I really get it from my, my dad, his, his love of and desire to be a vaudeville performer. You know, he soon got smart enough to realize that wasn't going to happen. And he, he just decided to stand behind the upright bass and, and play, play uh, with a big band. But that's where it comes from. And then, of course, my grandfather uh, would sit on the straight back chair in my dad's living room 
And if the Marx Brothers movies were on, he would watch and he loved Chico. He thought it was actually Chico and the rest. You know what I mean? <laughs> Chico, Marx, and some it's others. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. And, and did you then or do you now have, uh, where, where do we put you on the map of, of Marx Brothers fandom? Uh, favorite films or moments or, uh, or particular brothers who, who speak to you or, in one case, don't speak to you the most? <laughs> you know, um, it's hard to, isn't it? It's like it's asking your favorite Beatle. Yeah. I mean, you know. It's you, you, sometimes girls who were teenage girls can tell you who at the time can tell you who their favorite Beatle was because they had a crush or whatever. They, they all, for me, they all resonate in different ways. I mean, being a musician and being from a musical family, because my, my mother's parents were all musicians. My mom and dad were both professional musicians. You know, um, I love the fact that they could be this anarchic uh, comedy group that all that had this musical soul. You know, they, they each seem to have a musical soul about them. And it's an interesting thing as to how it softens the character or how it, there are these odd moments in every film, really, where whether it's Harpo at the harp or Chico at the piano or even Groucho singing because he had such a great voice, even though it was usually comic songs. But, you know, the, it, it, it gives you an insight into their, their souls, as music does. So that was always fascinating to me. But I love the Paramount Pictures. I love the progression, you know, when you first see Coconuts and you think of, and I've worked at Astoria Studios, you know, and you think about the Marx Brothers shooting in Astoria Studios and basically just coming across the river with their, with their Broadway antics. And it has, the, it has the feeling, having done eight shows a week for many, many, many years, it has the feeling of, we're just putting this on film. You know, and if you say bubble, you bubble a line or you do this or that, we're just going to keep on plowing ahead. You know, there has this very offhanded quality. Mm-hmm. And, and it's almost like it's, it's, I don't even know this is true, but it's almost like the movies weren't a known quality to them yet, how they might perform on movies. So they just did what they did. And so there's, a, there's really actually a very free-spirited feel to those. And, and almost like you feel like when you go in and, and shoot a Broadway show live, that that's, you're getting some lightning in a bottle. And I feel that way, particularly about the first two uh, films. So I, I love the Paramount movies. I, you know, obviously Duck Soup, because in the 60s, Duck Soup became quite revolutionary in the way it, it was seen and interpreted. Uh, you know, that nationalism and minstrelsy were basically equated. So that's become, that's become a favorite. And then there are sections, you know, you might pick out a section one movie or another, you know, is, is the Why a Duck section... You know, the sanity clause bit, you know, I mean, what, you know, what, what, and they come up from different movies, but um, I, I would say that Paramount, and particularly the early ones, you know, I love uh, Animal Crackers. I love room service. I mean, you know. All right. <laughs> hey, you're among friends, Don. We, we <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, and li- like any happy idiot, I can sit in front of any, any Marx Brothers movie, even, even love happy and say, that's great though. Look at that. Look at what's happening here. You know, so. Uh, to your point about, uh, I, I love that idea of just crossing the river to, to put the Broadway show on film in Astoria. Uh, you've worked in all the same media that the Marx Brothers did, you, on stage, on film, on television, on recordings. Um, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the differences in constructing comedy in front of a camera versus in front of an audience. Well, you know, it's it to me what's interesting, you can see this really, uh, you know, Preston Sturgis as well, or Leo McCary and Howard Hawks. You know, the, you, you, now we, we seem to modulate or construct comedy based on the cut. 
you know, and, and, and everything is so edited these days. And, and so that people are really using the cut for the joke. You know, if you do television sitcoms, like I have done, you know, particularly the, the live in front of an audience uh, version, you know, they're always saying, get all the jokes and close up, you know, and you want to go, you know, I'm going to show you like the beginning of Sullivan's Travels. And you're going to see one of the funniest scenes in film, and there isn't a cut in it. You know, there isn't a cut in it. You're just watching all these people. Because comedy is about reaction. You know, comedy is, and if you have two people playing comedy, it's the two of them in the same frame being funny and watching them react and play off each other much more than cutting to his close-up and her close-up. I mean, imagine if in the middle of, say, the mirror gag, you were cutting to close-ups of those people. You know, I had a, a discussion with a producer... Uh, on 30 Rock, and we, we, we became, we, we basically took, it was so funny because we basically took the law and order handheld camera style, which was for a cop show. And we said, what if it were part of, well, what if we made Liz Lemon's world that? You know, what if it was like, woo, woo, and you hear somebody and you go for it and all that? You know, you, you pan to it. So, so we used to, so we used the walk and talk liberally a lot in, in, in 30 Rock. And they wrote so funny, like the Marx Brothers in a funny way. They wrote joke, 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 joke. I mean, it wasn't like the axiom of, you know, three jokes a page from sitcom land. No, it was how many jokes can we put in this beat? How many jokes, you know, can we, how many times can we make somebody rewind because they missed joke because they were laughing at the last joke? Um, so we were joke heavy and joke loaded. And, and, you know, it's like watching any of Groucho's stuff, you know, it just goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, he said five funny things at one, you know, just in rapid succession. So, or the network would say, we'd like to get close-ups in the, in the walk-and talks. And we go, well, not only will you, will you ruin the rhythm of the walk-and talk, and if you want to pull time out, it's going to feel weird anyway, it's going to jump. I said, but more than that, it's the two people in the frame as they're walking along and we're walking with them that's creating this energy and this dynamic that heightens the funny. And it's not just about the word funny, it's about the response, it's about the reaction. So that's what I, I lament, you know, it's like, I would just as soon not have to cover a scene between two or three people that's really funny, and particularly if it's physical comedy. I mean, imagine if, you know, uh, Coconuts, it's, it's the hotel, it's they're all running around. And, you know, you want to go, imagine if somebody said you're going to cover that. What? You know, get in and get a close-up of Groucho as he goes by. And you're gonna go, no. <laughs> no, why not? Well, it won't be funny. That's why not. So that's it. I think the, the editing style that we employ these days is, is, is frequently at odds with what really makes comedy funny and what makes stage comedy funny. And again, when you see that, you know, they, they took the show from Broadway and put it on a stage in, in, in Astoria and basically photographed it. And there's not a lot of coverage. And so you get to see everybody working together like that. A lot of your work on 30 Rock has that. It has that joke density that you're talking about, um, which besides being just breathlessly entertaining, it also tends to reward repeated viewings. Uh, in order to catch things. Uh, but it also has in common with the Marx Brothers um, it, that it tends not to descend into sentimentality, or if it does, it does it so selectively that the moments really matter when they do decide to take that turn. Um, yeah. But it's interesting. A lot of comedy, uh, including a lot of great comedy, is talked about in terms of sentimentality. You know, it's funny and it has heart. You know, we, we hear that a lot. Um, what are your thoughts about that? It's that some some comedy can sustain it, and some comedy is better without too much emotion. 
Is it just that comedy is as rich as drama and there's a million ways to approach it? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think, I think anything that, you know, when they say com- comedy has heart and, you know, frequently in, uh, in the sitcom world, they say, well, by the end, we have to have that scene where dad says to the kid, oh, it's a, don't mind the neighbor's boy because, you know, he's in trouble. Whatever it is, some sappy sort of wrap up. Um, the truth of the matter is, in drama or comedy, characters' vulnerabilities are what, uh, what engages the audience. And vulnerability means that they just, that you see something human about them. Um, nowhere is it truer, say, than the Harpo, let's say. You know, it's no surprise when you, if you read, you know, Harpo's biography or autobiography, you know, um, when you get a sense of the real person underneath there, or, or you get a sense of the real family when you hear about the family itself, the Marx Brothers, and what they went through. There are vulnerabilities there that are accessible. And so when they puncture a sentimental moment, and we did this in 30 Rock too, puncture a sentimental moment, uh, it's because there's pain. And so, and, but the, and the, and so they go, but we're not hat. And they make a joke to undercut that, but you've already felt the vulnerability. You don't have to go for it. You don't have to underline it. You don't have to push it at me. Um, and that's what I think is so rewarding about, and even, you know, Liz Lemon's own, you know, self-negating. She feels she's inept at everything she does and all that stuff. You know, it's terribly vulnerable, and, but we can f- make fun of it. We can laugh at it because she allows us to, but at the same time, there's something about it. But we're not underlining it. We're not telling you about it. You know, we're not underscoring it, and we usually puncture it with a joke if we if we go there for a minute. And I think that's true of um, um, the Marx Brothers as well. Uh, and and I think of you know that whole idea that comedy with heart really means that these are these are stories in which the vulnerabilities of the characters are evident and it touches us yes you remind me of the moment from uh, early on in horse feathers you know son you took the wise right out of my mouth i'm ashamed to be your father <laughs> right yeah that's a perfect example uh, sort of blowing up the balloon in order to pop it uh, yeah both moments are made right it's great and and nobody says oh let's do more let's uh, wait let's do more of that before you before you make the joke or don't make the joke let's get more or on the other hand, no one said, go away from that. Let's not have a real moment. You know, both are on display, and it's great. Could you speak to the differences between doing comedy for three camera versus one camera? Is it just a matter of directing, or does it, does it script-wise you have to make adjustments? Yeah, I mean, in terms of, like, you know, your, your standard uh, multicam sitcom, classic, right. go back to Lucy and take it all the way through, mm-hmm. where it's three or four cameras in front of an audience. Generally, although it's begun to change uh, in the last few years, but generally it was all eye level, right? So basically it's a live performance in front of an audience and what they were doing was recording the live performance. So you do have, you know, you have two cameras in the center and two cameras on the wings on the sides. Two cameras on the center are giving you that theatrical, almost presentational, the two shot, the four shot, the master. They take moves and sit them down. So that's, but it's very presentational. The two cameras on the side are getting your close-ups for, you know, the, the, the writers who are saying get the jokes and close-up, or or just to get the moments, you know. But they're they're coming in from here and doing that. So that is the structure of it, and you have a live audience. There's a theatric there's a theatricality about it, even though you don't show a live audience like a Jack Benny show or somewhere you would might cut to an audience. 
you don't see that. But everyone's aware, so you're allowed this theatricality. You're allowed a fourth wall that's kind of broken, even though we're pretending we're in a real world. Whereas on film, when you're shooting single camera, and maybe just adding a second or third camera for emphasis or to make time during the day, save production time, you're not choreographing for those four cameras. You are choreographing mm -hmm. for the main shot, and you can go anywhere. You want to be in the refrigerator when the guy opens the thing and looks for the butter, you know, and there's a funny joke. You're in the refrigerator because that camera can go anywhere. You know, you want to be the fly's eye. You know, you want to be, you know, whatever, wherever you can, can think of telling the story from whatever angle you want, low, high, inside a garbage can, whatever it is, that camera can go there. The other is, is a much more presentational thing. And you stage for it. You choreograph for it. Much in the way you... Uh, it's very kind of old-fashioned staging, really. Like, you would stage for a Broadway comedy, you know? I mean, you know, if you think of All in the Family, couch, chair, kitchen right, mm -hmm. bedrooms off left, you know, and all that. And it's, it's very much presentational. I bring that up because you, you were talking about how much you appreciate the first two films, and those are very much shot in a three-camera way. Yeah. Although, particularly in Coconuts, you know, it's evident that they're used to an audience, and... There's no reaction, and sometimes it's a little <laughs> yeah. like how are we supposed to how are we supposed to are we supposed to wait? Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Well, and yeah. it's to me it's fascinating because uh, I'm, obviously this is the element out of which the Marx Brothers come. They come from performing for an audience, and they come from that kind of. I mean, it's ensemble work. It's what today mm -hmm. we would call ensemble work. You know, and if I'm working with a a play that's very ensemble that needs an ensemble kind of dynamic. You'll spend the first week of rehearsals doing ensemble work to get them all on the same wavelength. Whereas with the Marx Brothers, they were brothers. They grew up together. This is all developed together. They were already an ensemble. Uh, so, but it's being able to watch the ensemble work and not have it arbitrarily, not arbitrarily, but selected for you to watch. Instead, you can sit there like audience. It was one of the great things about coming to see Alsatius was for those of us who were never able to... Everyone alive, really, see the Marx Brothers on stage. It was this just revelation to go, whoa, this is what it was like. No wonder they, they made it, you know, and did what they did. Um, because this is what audiences were responding to. This all-in-one presentation of this madcap energy all firing at the same time. Yeah. One of the real challenges about it, and I, I suppose of, of any similar thing, if you're doing coconuts or animal crackers on stage too, is uh, you have to make choices about what, what are the Marx Brothers doing when they're not doing anything. Like we're in a moment right now where on film, the camera wouldn't be on them. It's, you know, it's the supporting yeah. cast working out their problems. How do you just stand there? Um, and <laughs> the, the actor impulses always kick in, like, I don't want to steal focus. On the other hand, that is very much my job here. <laughs> right, yeah. And on the very few occasions in the movies when you do see them all in, in, in a single long shot, in, in, in a, you know, kind of the proscenium frame, they always do look so interesting there, don't they? I mean, you, when you see the, just the, the simple fact of seeing all of their body in one shot... Um, yeah. They they always look great, and I and I always kind of wish there was a bit more of that. I mean, obviously, I can see why there isn't. But right, no, but that's a great point. And you know, the other thing is that physical comedy. I mean, you know, what what's so many comedians? It's it's watching their body as well, and certainly the Marx Brothers were no exception to that. They each had such distinct physical mm. life and comic comic 
physical life, in their bodies. So to see them head to toe, you know, and I'm frequently saying, go wider, I want to see, you know, to the cameraman, I'll say, go wider, I want to see, you know, you're cutting them off here, you know, at least give me his hands, you know. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's amazing. You know, I did a movie with Jim Carrey, and um, at one point the producers were saying, um, well, we were, we were in the cutting room, and one of the producers wasn't there, and I said, where is she? And they said, oh, she's done stage, whatever, she's doing the face fixes on Jim Carrey. I said, I'm sorry, what? So Jim Carrey, you know, it's kind of his deal, they remove wrinkles and stuff. I said, I, I, I didn't know anything about that. He said, well, no, well, it's in his deal. You know, they, they, I said, he just turned 50 on our set. He's not an old man. I, I, so I, now, I, now I can't stand it. I can't sit there any longer. So I get up and I go to the other stage. And I said, what is happening? And they said, oh, yeah, we're just, I said, show it to me. And they, so they're, they're reducing the wrinkles on his face. They're basically mm -hmm. airbrushing his face. And they set it up, and then, you know, the computer does it frame by frame by frame by frame, and now he has smoothened out certain... And I said, well, you just made him not funny. This is a man who uses his face for humor. He's a mugger. And you're, you're now taking, taking that away. I said, well, it's I said, okay, what is that at? If, 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 on a scale of 1 to 100, what's that? And they said 80%. I said, take it down to 50. And so they took it down to 50. I said, okay, take it 40, 30. Finally, I went to 20, and I said, okay, tell them we did it. And tell them, thank you very much. We did. And it really was negligible difference. Um, and when I told, ultimately told Jim about it, he was shocked. He had no idea. And I said, you know, I'd be on it, dude, because they're taking away your funny. And it's the same thing with the bodies in comedy. It's like, why would you reduce? Why would you, you know, take that away? A very good example of this is the, is the, um, the, the cutlery falling out of Harpo's sleeve, um, which... which you know, is the definition of a of a long shot joke, isn't it? And and in in in, mm. in the film, they they've 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 framed the image as tight as they can possibly get, haven't they? So that you can still yeah. still see it coming out. Which meant that when I first saw it on British TV screens, which which kind of cropped it a bit again, uh, you lit yeah. you literally couldn't see the bottom of the sleeve. You could just hear it, and uh, you know, thereby killing the joke. It, I mean, completely yeah. killing it. So yeah. It becomes a radio joke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially there, where having a continuous one take long shot version of that would um, would settle the question of whether there's any trickery involved. Mm. Uh, whereas on right. stage, so much of the joke is that there's no way around this. He really does have that much silverware in his sleeve. <laughs> That's mm. right. You guys did that in Alsatia too. It was just like marvelous <laughs> to watch. Yeah, I was just looking at it recently. I was editing some I'll Say She Is clips for a purpose to be disclosed at a future date and uh, watching some of the uh, some of the footage of Seth Sheldon performing the knife gag. And uh, it, despite how familiar that material is to me, um, I found myself really laughing out loud at it because he was so good at... You really thought he couldn't have much left. And... <laughs> Only then, then would he reveal that he hadn't even dropped half of it yet. Yeah, that's great. Uh, in Seth's case, he had a plastic tube in his sleeve, which, which we would load with silverware in advance, and then it could be installed in his sleeve before he went on. But then he had about <laughs> ten minutes worth of. So I was going to say, yeah, yeah. Of jokes and things to play, and this, yeah, what clanking around. Yeah, yeah and, and like Harpo, he's so physically gifted that he was able to create the impression. He seemed like pretty weightless on stage until yeah. the, that gag began, but he really had 
uh, maybe like 40 pounds of silver. <laughs> it shows belly. you that, that all, all comedy, you know, there's, there's, there's sweat equity in, in some comedy. And that certainly is, is that. Um, I wanted to ask you about this, uh, this film that you've directed recently. I, I, think, uh, I think it's a 2022 film, which, if I understand correctly, has been seen at festivals and is awaiting uh, release. Uh, it's called Our Almost Completely True Story. It's a film you made yeah. with Mariette Hartley and Jerry Sroka. Uh, everything I have read and heard about it and from watching the trailer... Uh, it seems like quite a beautiful movie, and uh, I can't help noticing the trailer is full of Marx Brothers references. <laughs> Stuffed to the yes. gills with well, them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. You know, well, Jerry and I, both Marx Brothers fans, frequently doing Marx Brothers imitations at each other, punctuating our conversations and our lives together with silliness from Marx Brothers movies. So, and Jerry's an old Godspeller. Um, I use old and I mean he is old but he's not old old but uh so he's he's a godspeller person and and we knew each other from that period um and he did a lot of groucho in the, in godspell by the way which is uh we people don't know that who have never seen like true real godspell perform but there was a lot of it was informed heavily by uh a lot of the old comedians but particularly Marx brothers so he wrote this movie uh, our almost completely true story with his wife Mariette Hartley about how they met, their love story, and her uh, devastating illness, how they got through it, and, and lived happily ever after. And it's very, very funny. Jerry plays basically a version of himself. Mariette plays herself, and a lot of wonderful guest cameos. But one of the themes in the movie when they're dating initially is his love for the Marx Brothers, and she doesn't quite get it. And you know, through the course of the movie, finally at the end of the movie, they, you know, they end, he comes to the door and she's got horse feathers on in the background and he says I hear you've got it on it's, it's, a, it's a delightful movie and it's finally gotten a, a distributor so I think it's going to be coming out in December uh, for it's got a deal to play some theaters first and then, and then uh, be streaming oh that's good but there's a lot, of, wow. a lot of Marx Brothers and oh. Marx Brothers references in it well it's a good thing she wasn't watching Go West because you, you would have <laughs> lost me there <laughs> Yeah, it's good. And in fact, he throws in Groucho in a couple places where you don't even know that it's, I mean, unless you know, you don't know. Like, he says something about uh, Sam McMurray, the wonderful actor Sam McMurray is playing, is, is supposed to come over to play tennis with them. And he's just meeting Jerry for the first time. And Jerry is short. And he says to him, uh, are you, you're playing uh, net? Is that because you can't see over it? And he said, no, that's what the little holes are for. <laughs> I mean, he, and he just throws it, he just throws it away, you know. <laughs> Um, but there it is. Uh, it looks great. And for our listeners, so you can keep an eye out for it in December, I suppose, uh, the title of that film is Our Almost Contr- Actually, Complete... Actually, the, the title has been changed slightly by the studio, by the distributing company. Our Almost com- our almost Completely True Love Story. Our Almost Completely True Love Story is the title. There's just a little more title for your buck there. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Sroka also impersonates Chico quite well. There's a, a swordfish moment. And he gets a reaction that some of us have heard in real life. Who is it? Uh, swordfish. What? Uh, that's the password, swordfish. No, it, it's, it's Jerry. I thought you said swordfish. Yeah, I, I, I did. 
Well, why did you say swordfish? Well, it's it's the Marx Brothers routine. I, I thought Gelson's was deliver me fish. Oh no no no! It, it, it's me. It's it's the Marx Brothers. <laughs> well, some people think they're funny. Well, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. There's one. Of, there's one of those in every crowd. <laughs> Unfortunately, true. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to change gears here a bit. Uh, Don, i got a question. Um, you know, as we all know, in the latter half of the 30s and into the 40s, the Marx's film career right, sort of you know, went off the rails. I'm just curious what you think went wrong. Uh, could they have been salvaged, though? What would you have done to salvage them? If you were, yeah. if you were advising them, yeah. You know, it. that's hard. I mean, because there's, let's face it, there's so many... So many stresses on them at that point in time. You know, there's all the, mm. all the stress that comes with success. Um, you know, even even after, uh, you know, the, the 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 difficult climb up the ladder to get to where they finally got to and become the phenomenon that they were, and then all the stuff that comes with success. Not only and it's even worse today because of all the constant mm. scrutiny. But you know, all of that, the marriages, the families, the the terrible schedules, the the money. You know, uh, and then uh, what's-his-face leaves the studio and leaves them high and dry, and so they leave Paramount and they go to MGM. and You know, so there, there are all these things that happen in the course of a career like that uh, that that impact upon the freedom of the artist to create joyfully, you know, which clearly, you know, I mean, whatever else and whatever stuff they suffered from, and we all create art out of our pain as well as our joy, but whatever they suffered from, when they finally got to do their art and do their work and, and become successful, like, for instance, I'll say she is, which they thought was going to be a dog uh, when they finally got to New York, and, you know, suddenly they wake up in the morning and the reviews are all great, and, and uh, who was it, Wolcott, who had written this wonderful review of Harpo and all of that. So suddenly they're this, and the joy of that, propels you and it allows you to do your art in a free way and not realize and not, not feel that people are going to be critical of you. So, so there, there's, there's that progression and, you know, that story is, in, you know, whether it's Judy Garland, whether it's Frank Sinatra, Sammy, anybody who during that era rose to fame, there's always that point at which either time escapes them, you know, as they get older and their art becomes less relevant or, or the pressures of success... The bitch got a success. Just kind of, you know, um, eclipse the joy in doing the art, and the art doesn't become as real or as true anymore. Um, so the stress is on, or, you know, the Beatles break up, you know, whatever. You know, the stress is on that kind of an entity uh, can't be sort of discounted. In, in terms of how you would, you know, reinvent yourselves, you know, now we talk about branding, you know, um, and and... I think it's a terrible way to look at art because what happens is you, you, someone will be telling you, the money guy, the producer, whatever will say, or the marketing person, you're, you're veering too far off your brand. Well, it's not a brand. I was just doing what was instinctively in my heart and soul that I wanted to create. So if anything, I would say, you know, you wander off brand. But, um, I, you know, I don't, think there, I don't think there's a way out of the slide that took place. You know, I just don't know. You know, it's almost like knowing when to call it quits. It's funny. Tina Fey said at the end of season six, five, six, I think it was season six, said, you know, um, we're going to stop because we're only going to start repeating ourselves. We're only going to start doing what we've been doing. 
um, and it's going to get stale. And it's you know it's it's better let's let's kind of quit while we're ahead. And even then, she felt like maybe they'd gone on a season too long. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's also true. Uh, and you know, I mean, you, you just look at the the Beatles solo careers. You know, they all had to find and figure out a way what was their own musical career going to be like. Um, yeah, well, they were twenty eight when they broke <laughs> right. up. You know, it's very it is different. different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but you know, the Marx is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know if there's any way to salvage. You know, mm-hmm. um, and also, you know, they're let's face it, they're they're hilarious thumbing their nose at just about everyone and everything uh, in, in pursuit of comedy uh, and comment that wasn't so popular in the 50s. Mm-hmm. You know, to be, you know, the 50s McCarthy era, we're much the way we are, we're, you know, flirting with right now on the right wing. So, um, which, of course, is when you need people to thumb, thumb the nose, but it becomes increasingly more dangerous and less popular. So I think there's a political um, aspect to it as well. Can I ask you a question as a director? Um, we, 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 for some reason, we, we attract a lot of writers, but we don't, we don't attract very many directors. So it's, it's, it's very nice to, to actually have a director in the hot seat there because there are, um, there's a lot of debate about the Marx Films directors. Do they benefit from good directors? Do they need good directors? Do they just need the camera pointing at them and let them do it? Or does, for instance, somebody like Leo McCary uh, make an, an appreciable difference? Um, watching the films as, as a director, are you, are you ever aware of, ah, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good moment, that's not a good moment, I would have done that differently, I would have done that better? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you, can, you can see, you know, it... it it's subtle because the style of the Marx brothers is so much their own. And clearly, you know, for the, for the longest time, they really almost always ran, ran the roost in terms of what, how, what was going to happen. You know, they knew their stuff. They knew what they did, but you can see, for instance, you look at Leo McCary's stuff and you can see, you know, Leo McCary had been working with Laurel and Hardy and you can kind of see the, um, almost like the trade-off tit for tat insult comedy back and forth that, you know, Laurel and Hardy did so well with Charlie Hall and that kind of thing with Leo McCary directing. You can see that kind of thing influence. Like I say, it's, the Marx Brothers make it their own. I don't know. I, I, I'm so besotted with the Marx Brothers. I don't know if there's anything I would say, well, I would have done it differently or better. I wouldn't be, be so presumptuous. But, uh, but I think as, as, you know, when you go into the Thalberg era and he was seemed to be more concerned with telling stories and the stories have a coherence um whereas in in the paramount era before that is that right thalberg at mgm right yeah yeah whereas the paramount era you know they were they were free to not have to be slaves to any kind of stories or the stories were either made fun of or the stories were there because well there has to be a story but when you get get to to thalberg you, you realize that there's um, as good as those movies are, there there seems to be more of an emphasis on that and a little less emphasis on, and I suppose the directors were were part and parcel of how to do that and make it make it more palatable to an audience looking for a story as well as a, com- a comic story. But some directors handle, I think, the dark humor better. But you know, I'll bet, and I don't know this for a fact. You, you know, you guys would know this better than me because you're more scholars on the subject. But I'll bet that. You know, the directors, you know, for me, it's a lucky director that goes, I'm not saying anything, I'm just roll camera, you know, because what Alec is doing here, you know, will come in and Alec is doing something amazing, you know, or Alec will say, you know, 
Gov, just run the, just run it, just run it. I'll give you twenty, you know, just run it, mm-hmm. you know, and he'll, he'll give you twenty versions of that particular joke or that particular thing because he loves to play. He loves that's his happy spot, his happy space, and um, and I think it's the same thing here. It's like I, I bet the directors were willing to sit back and just go, just put the <laughs> camera on them, you know, let it roll, and where they go, follow, <laughs> you know. I definitely feel it's about theater. I always feel like if someone says, "Well," Oh, who who directed it? Uh, or, or I was so I love the direction, and you know I directed a few Good Men on Broadway, and they say I love the direction. I always feel like I failed in some way, because I want to say if you're if you're saying I love the direction, you weren't paying attention. You know, you weren't involved in the story. You've some somehow stepped back. You know, I mean, I should step back. I'm the director. I have to have that point of view. But you should be in it. You should be absorbed in it. Um, and I often feel that way about films too. You know, I just feel like. Director's showing off a little bit too much, you know. Uh, sometimes it's dazzling and all that, but I lost the story because I was so dazzled by the directing. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, and that must be particularly true in comedy, where there is this uh, mandate to get laughs, or at least to amuse the audience, fairly consistently over a course of, you know, 90 minutes or, or a little less or a little more. Uh, you've, you've directed some of the funniest people in the world and people who are to our time what the Marx Brothers were to theirs. And and you've had to do often what the best Marx Brothers directors did, which is to sort of steer the ship and create a, a good atmosphere for creativity while dominating the work with somebody else's personality. Yeah, it, it's, it was interesting. You know, I learned a lot from, you know, I mean, uh, it's terribly sad. The, the Cosby story is terribly sad. Ultimately, but I learned a lot from working with Bill. I did two years with Bill. And um, first of all, Bill would say to the writers and watch them crestfallen, just watch them. He would say to them, he finished a reading of a script and he'd go, okay. And he closed the script and he said, don't try and be funny. Just give me a story. Give me a good story this week. I'll put in the funny. We'll put in the funny. Me, Madeline Kahn, Felicia, we'll put in the funny. And, you know, um, there's a there's a thing about and, and the same thing is true was true with Alec Tina and those things or or um, the the girls and two broke girls they're very good physical comedians you know it's when to get out of the way and I think that's true of directing anyway whether it's comedy whether it's dramas when do you get out of the way if you have a point of view that you can suggest so that you tell the story from the point of view that you know this as a director you've been hired. To, to bring out and and hopefully early on in the process you have been able to load that computer load those actors with that point of view you should be able to step back and let it happen and not get in their way people come into audition they'll say do you want to say anything to me before I start and I'll say well why should I get in your way let me see what you brought let me see what you what you feel because it, it may be more illuminating than anything I have because you're working at it from the inside and that's one of the pluses of having been an actor for 20 years before I became a director for the next 100 um, was uh, was you know uh, was having that experience you know like I'd be ready for an audition come in and go and the director said before you begin I want you to know he's very angry I go Oh shit! That's not what I thought at all. You know, um, whereas I, you know, you learn something the other way, and I think it's especially true of comedy. You know, if you're working with Marty and Steve uh, on on uh, uh, Only Murders in the Building, you know, I want to see what they've got first. I want to see what they want to do because they're comic geniuses. 
Mm-hmm. I'm a good director, but I'm not a comic genius. I got a great sense of humor, and I, and I know what, what makes me laugh, and that helped me with comedy. But those guys are comic geniuses. And um, Well, I read that Marty's not funny. I read that somewhere recently. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Boy, I don't know where those sour grapes came from, but, you know. <laughs> Not to mention, you know, really one of the one of the best best people in the universe, just in terms of his own mm-hmm. generosity and spirit. Well, you know, him back from the Godspell days, right? I do yes, yes. Yeah. And talk about yeah. talk about by the way, anarchic comedy. You know, Godspell is an amazing thing because it, you know, talk about a juxtaposition. We have the story of Jesus told by a group of clowns, and this is mm-hmm. what people don't really understand today because they watch the movie or they see later iterations of this show and it's like a bunch of hippies tell the story or something it's all very uh, you know it was very anarchic because John Michael Tebelak was kicked out of church because he looked like a freak so he said that can't be what the message of Jesus is so he went back and he decided I'm going to tell the story with Jesus as a clown because he must have been a funny guy because he got anybody to follow him so he must have been entertaining so he took this thing and he made Jesus the biggest clown of all I will wore big orange shoes and I had, you know, uh, pom-poms on the edge of them and a Superman shirt and striped pajamas, you know, and, and did Groucho Marx impressions. The Clown Prince of Peace. <laughs> exactly. The Clown Prince of Peace. Yes. And uh, so in Godspell, uh, there was room for Marty and, and uh, Butch and Eugene Levy to do their, their comedy shtick and ad lib and play around from night to night and of course they are very anarchic comedians and Andrea Martin was in it as well mm-hmm. so it, it, it was a blast because all that same spirit that kind of marketing spirit was very much evident in that Toronto company it's one of the reasons why that company has become so kind of legendary is because the the, the show itself had had a spark that the other companies didn't quite get to and it's, I think it's because of those comic geniuses that we had and Gilda it was Gilda and Andrea and Marty and Gene all in the same company mm, and Dave Thomas and Paul Schaefer was at the piano and Dave Thomas was a was an understudy and then he finally took over I was gone by then but Paul Schaefer you know Jesus wears a uh, black eye sort of uh, uh, Marcel Marceau teardrop and a red heart and a red nose uh, and funny clothes and in the middle of the crucifixion one night I'm on the fence and we're singing, the rock music is playing and I'm writhing on the fence and I look up and the organ, Paul's organ and the band were upstage, up on top, left and right on platforms. And I look up and Paul's face just peeks over the organ, looks right at me and he's wearing the Jesus makeup (laughs) and grinning. (laughs) It's like, when now you're gonna crack me up now i'm dying here i'm literally trying to die <laughs> so you know the whole thing had had a had a great great spirit uh anarchic spirit was the broadway production which i i know it only from the cast recording but was the broadway production uh more reverent um than- no no the broadway production was really i mean basically what happened was they they decided they had been playing to bigger houses on the road and selling out. So they decided, well, we've been in the Promenade Theater, which is 299 seats, for five years. We should, you know, before it peters out, you know, what, let's, the producers thought, let's move it to Broadway and play a bigger house. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. I, I had left the show. I came back into the show, but they brought a bunch of other people in who were kind of known for being special in their roles from other companies. And they kind of made this sort of super company. And it was equally just as irreverent and just as salty. It's just, 
you know, if you didn't see it back then, I've been trying for a long time now to do a production the way the original production was, because I think from the movie onwards, it's gotten a kind of pastel-y kind of Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat yes. feel to it, rather than mm. rather than the, the it was there it was irreverent. I mean, there were people who would stand up and yell at us and leave the theater in the middle of the show. They'd yell blasphemy, and they'd walk out, or they would mm. you know they pick it. Or they come back. I got beaten up by a woman with a Bible. Once. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> came backstage very meekly asking to talk to Jesus. And so I went out and she was holding a Bible. She said, Do you believe everything Jesus said was true? And I said, Well, sure. I mean, he was Jesus. Sure. He didn't lie. <laughs> she said, Well, then how can you do this show this way? And I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what I don't know what you're getting at. She didn't realize that this is blasphemy. And she starts whacking me upside the head with this Bible. Left, right, left, right. Marty comes out and you they pull this poor, crazy, crazed woman off me. But, you know, Superstar, which opened at the same time, Superstar was the passion play, basically, with rock music. Great music, great spectacle, but it was the passion play. They all wore robes and he looked like Jesus. I looked like a baggy pants comedian and walked in from a 14th Street theater. You know, we were doing uh, vaudeville shtick. And then Ted Williams, who knows who Ted Williams was anymore, you know. Is everybody happy in the middle of all for the best? You know, <laughs> some people knew, you know, but that spirit, that anarchic thing, that they're very informed by the Marx Brothers. So John Michael was a big Marx Brothers fan. That's been lost. So we have to do it again and, and try and get back to that. But I'm sure now we'd be not only, I'm sure the theater would be burned down now. You know, <laughs> Lauren Boebert. Yes, Lauren right. Boebert. <laughs> And her group would come and, you know, burn the theater down. You'd have an entire caucus <laughs> with Bibles. Uh, <laughs> That's right. That's but right. at least I guess she did give you a chance to say, thank you. It's been a blast for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, where were you when I needed you? That would have been great. <laughs> You've worked with Aaron Sorkin on a few projects. I'm curious, is he a Marx Brothers fan? Uh, it seems like he is. Uh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Without doubt. You know, I mean, we... Um, you know, I, 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 Aaron had seen Godspell and a number of times, unbeknownst to me, his cousin was a stage manager and I was working with him in Summerstock and said, my cousin, he wants to be a playwright and he's got this crazy play and he, yeah. mm. and that's very long. Could you read it? You know, and he's a big fan of yours and he knows now you're directing. So I'm sure. So I read a play by Aaron Sorkin called Removing All Doubt. Dialogue was great. Everything that we know about the Hallmark, you know, trademark sort of Sorkin-esque dialogue was there. Play didn't really add up, and I said to him, met him, he was 22, 21. I said, you, have you had the play read? No, we read the play. I gave him a bunch of notes, said, good luck, kid, and sent him on his way. A year later, he calls mm. me up and says, I got this other play. Um, did you read it? It's called A Few Good Men. Mm -hmm. Okay, get mm. this play. It's three and a half hours long, and uh, you know, we cut it down and did it. Um, and mm. the rest is history, or hysterical. But um, yes, he's, he's, he's definitely got a great sense of humor, as, as is in evidence. And he's, um, uh, he was definitely a Marx Brothers fan. There's mm -hmm. a lot of references uh, in his work yeah, to the Marx yeah, Brothers. Seen them and, all. Yeah, Including in the uh, West Wing episode that you directed, which is called uh, Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. I think that's a Mark Twain right. uh, quote. But, yeah, it is. But there's a yeah. Marx Brothers uh, reference in that episode about the Federated States of Micronesia. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I forgot. I forgot. Yeah. Um, and 
in preparing for this conversation, I what I did I I googled your name along with the Marx Brothers names to find uh, and any really? crisscrossing, and that was wow. one of them. Um, and I remembered the episode. Uh, and um, in the West Wing Weekly podcast that Josh Molina and uh, Rishi Herway had for uh, for quite some time, going through the entire series, uh, Josh Molina, who you must have worked with uh, on a few Good Men as well as uh, yeah. Uh, both television series that he did with yeah. Sorkin. Uh, he yeah. praised your comic timing um, as a director as well as as an actor. Uh, oh, and that that was one of the funnier episodes because of your comic timing. And I thought it's a really interesting and valid point that uh, the director's sense of timing has as much to do with the uh, performer's sense of timing. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that, at the importance of timing uh, to comedy and drama. And it's elusive, isn't it? People always talk about it. Ah, the most important thing is timing. Uh, but what does it really mean in practice? You know, I, it, it, it's interesting. So I, I, I don't, it's kind of a, an instinct with me. It's kind of natural. I mean, I never think about it. I, I once um, I became friendly because I had been testing her for a movie. She didn't get it. I became friendly with Anona Ryder, and she was a big Law & Order fan. And she said, I can always tell when they're your episodes. And I, I said, how? And she said, because they, they're the funny ones. I said, but it's Law & Order. She said, yeah, but they, they're the funny ones. They have a sense of humor. I, I, I don't think about it so much except that I'm a big believer in the human comedy. I'm a big, big believer in it, even in the depth of tragedy. There, you can find comedy. Life is inherently comedic. God is playing a big joke on all of us. And it's what gets you through. It's like being a musician in a way. You know, you just know that when, particularly in the construction of a particular joke or something, a physical comedy, that there's a rhythm to it. And whether it's uh, a rhythm that is boom, like a, you know, a drum thing with an accent, or, you know, you, you just know that if, if you have that rhythm, you'll get the laugh. If you take that, you know, Jack Benny is one of my heroes. You know, Jack Be Benny's a master of timing. I'm thinking, I'm thinking is like a classic mm -hmm. illustration of, of what, what, what is timing, you know? Somebody mm -hmm. once said to me, um, a producer, I can't remember quite this story, but a producer said to me, thought the pacing was off. And I said, and it, and it wasn't. So I said, well, well, how do you define pacing? He said, well, it's got to go faster. I said, that's not pacing. I said, pacing is the time between moments. So pacing doesn't mean go faster or slower. It's what is the time between a moment. So if I say to somebody, if they're playing a dramatic moment, and I say, you know, just if I were to think, pace that a little slower so that it will land properly, it's about the time between moments and, and having it land properly. If it's comic, and, and, and I may say speed it up, it's not because I think pacing is faster. It means that it needs to go quicker so that when you get to the joke, I'm caught by surprise. Or I've taken that beat beforehand and then the joke. Let me ask you a technical question about, about this, which is purely just in terms what is your preference. I, I, I know there's no right or wrong answer for this. But one of the things that, that Falberg picked up on, on on the Paramount films was that the jokes were too rapid and, you, and the audience missed some. Uh, and so he, he made them take those artificial pauses. So you see, particularly in things like the contract scene, uh, yeah. there'll be, a, there'll be a, a, you know, a cutaway to one of their faces to accommodate a laugh. Um, in your opinion, I I is that a good thing or does it kind of falsify the moment? And the right attitude is tough shit if they miss a joke they miss a joke there'll be another one in a minute you know yeah well you know and it is an overall kind of thing it's like um 
if I'm saying to an actor, you know, take time for that. Let let the let the audience laugh. I might be letting the air out of the scene altogether. Whereas if I say there are three jokes there, if you just plow through and get to that third joke, you're going to have this huge laugh. But if we ask for a laugh on each one, then you're not going to take that big laugh on the on the button, you know. Let's say. Um, so 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 there there's an art to that, I guess, or figuring out what what those internal rhythms are and how they finally land the big joke or the point or whatever. So I think it's, it's, it's different throughout. I mean, in today's world, of course, people are always saying, and like we said earlier, you know, I'm going to go back and watch that episode again because I missed so many of the jokes. I was laughing so hard. And that's not a bad thing in terms of the, from the producing end because you say, yeah, let's, let's let them pay for it again or whatever. <laughs> um, so, there, so there's that. I mean, I know that, for instance, in 30 Rock, it was definitely... Um, uh, the point of view of the writers to move it, move it, move it, move it, move it, move it, and let them, you know, if, they're, if they laugh and miss one, too bad, because it's much better that they're just holding their sides laughing throughout. But yeah, you're right. There's, it, it's, it's all, there is no right or wrong answer. It's just a kind of question, you know, Thalberg today, as a, as during that day, I bet that was a good note, because people sitting in the theater got a chance to laugh, and the cutaway helped, or whatever it was, or taking the beat helped. Whereas today where we're used to faster pace or we can rewind, it wouldn't be um, such a good note because it would go flat. Uh, what if they don't laugh? It's that same thing about on stage when we're in previews, someone will come to me and say, last night they got such a huge laugh and tonight it didn't. Why was that? And sometimes there's no answer. It's just the mystery of live performance. And sometimes it's, you took too long. You know, I was watching. You took too long before you said the punchline or the rhythm had changed even if it's subtle the rhythm had changed you know some somebody there's an old story you probably know the story I don't, I don't know if i'm gonna say it right but there's a joke about somebody saying to the director when i ask for the ten dollars i usually get a laugh and they said well you did i didn't get a laugh tonight why not they said well because you you were asking for the laugh instead of for the ten dollars <laughs> yeah i've heard that expressed uh, um yeah. as uh, you're asking for the laugh not the sugar uh, and I always thought yeah. that must be... Yeah, past the sugar, I always get a laugh. And they said, well, you were asking for the laugh and not asking for the sugar. Yeah, I've always wondered um, where that originated. I guess you'd have yeah, to read too. every comedy and find a you, funny well, moment. You're a good sugar. researcher. You could probably find that out. <laughs> I'll, I'll get right on that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tricky devil. It's a tricky beast, you know, because um, one man's funny is another man's not. But it's what I love about live performance in theater. And, and even, you know, someone said to me, well, why, why do you like doing those sitcoms in front of a live audience? Because it's not as interesting as film for the director. And I said, yeah, but there's that, there's that thing that comes from the theater, which is that, you know, we had two audiences in here or we did two different takes of this and watching how, how one plays and how, uh, how one audience reacts and how another acts or, or just fine tuning it that much makes the difference. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's fun. It, it's, it just makes the job more interesting. Did you do any of the 30 Rock Live episodes? I didn't. And the reason I did, I was executive producer then too, but I didn't put myself in those episodes because we had a director who hadn't done uh, film television, who had done a lot of mm. SNL. And Tina asked mm. me to train her or allow her to, to do, a, do a, an episode or two. And then she did, ended up doing a lot. Her name is Beth McCarthy Miller. And she's done award shows. And, done that, and she did mm. SNL for nine years. And, you know, live is a particular beast. Um, and you've got to have ice water in your veins, <laughs> you know, because it's a very, 
you know, you're out there without a net and it's, it's rare, you know? So I said, let's have Beth do these because not only, and, and, and it was, it, we did them up in uh, the SNL studios. So it was that camera crew and all of that. So it was a familiar mm -hmm. place for her. And I just thought that was a smarter uh, decision and, you know, led to less uh, agita on my part if I had been the director. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, I've done live cutting of four cameras, but, you know, I thought, no, this is, this is not, let, let someone who's got experience with this do it. And she did a great job. You know, we always came back saying it wasn't quite our show. Uh, and I said to Alec, I said, I felt that way too. Why do you think it wasn't quite our show? And he said, because we had to hold for laughs, speaking of. And I said, oh, you're right, of course. We had an audience there. We never did it with an audience before. So now you had to wait for the laugh, whereas... Normally in 30 Rock, we plowed ahead. That's one of the things that's interesting about those live episodes, because it's very much the one-camera comedy approach to comedy, uh, yet there is this present laughter. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it, it, it basically slowed, slowed us down in a way. The, our usual kind of rhythm for that show was slowed down. Well, I have uh, I have one I have one more big Marx Brothers question uh, before we, sure. we let Don go. But uh, before I do that, uh, do you, is there anything else that uh, Bob or Matthew that you'd like to ask about? Uh, I have a non Marx Brothers question, um, which I'm asking purely because I never thought I would ever actually get the chance to ask anyone this, <laughs> but I can with you. Uh, and the question is this: as an actor. Going to work every day knowing that you will be interacting with what, by official estimates, were three million worms. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, was that fun? Was that a fun gig? <laughs> I'm talking about the film Squirm, in case anyone is, uh, in case anyone is uh, uh, not, not up to speed. Yes, um, absolutely. It was, a, it was a great laugh. Every day. I mean, it was like doing a comedy, quite frankly, because, you know, the premise was ludicrous. Although the director, when he was a young lad, had done this thing. He had stuck wires into the ground to make worms come out of the ground. He had read about it in some science magazine, if you want to get worms for fishing. And he had done that. And being the kind of brain that Jeff Lieberman is, the director of that film, he just had this premise rattling around his head for years until he became a film director of what would happen if like, you know, thousands of volts of electricity from a power storm, power lines going out in the storm, what would that do to the worms? <laughs> anyway, so the whole premise was ludicrous, number one. And the thing about it was, like for instance with Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey did a trick in, in, um, in uh, Burt Wonderstone where he says, uh, do you, do you, know, you know, pick a card, pick a card, and they, he's a magician and he says, uh, do you know your card? Don't, don't, don't tell me. And he takes a knife and he cuts his cheek and he reaches into his cheek and he put blood is coming out and he pulls out this card. It was kind of a, a take on a spoof on Chris Angel. And he pulls out the card and it's bloody and he goes, is this your card? So when we were cutting it, of course, I said, more, more, I want more digging, digging, dig around. People going, ooh, more, more. And I think it's hilarious. And we show it to the first screening and they're not laughing. I'm thinking, why aren't they laughing? It's so funny. And they said, because they think it's real. Oh, right. I know it's fake because I directed it. So it's the same thing with making squirm. We know it's <laughs> fake. Um, when there's a sea of worms engulfing the, the worm man at the end and he's going down under this sea like in quicksand, like this worm. I knew that because the, mo the movie was done so cheaply. 
that they only had a certain number of rubber worms that they had ordered from New York. We're shooting in Georgia, in a small town in Georgia. And we got a tr- several troops of Boy Scouts to go under, <laughs> under a tarp. <laughs> and they they were all under this tarp, kind of squatting under this tarp, maybe like 80 Boy Scouts. And on the, on the tarp itself, barely just chest height to our actor, was the, the number of worms that we had managed to collect from New York, rubber worms. And they said to the, he said, I'm going to give you all a number. And when I say an odd number, you guys push up on the tarp. <laughs> and the odd number, you guys push up. And so he... He had them all go from underneath the tarp so that the worms were dancing around this guy as he sunk in the... And, you know, that's hilarious. That's just hilarious. So the whole thing was a goof from start to finish. Hmm. So in that sense, it was like we were having our own comedy. (laughs) Um, And um, it was really fun because of that. That's good to know. You know, I was afraid you were going to say, "Oh, it was disgusting. It was every day. It was an ordeal." Yeah. Well, the, 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 I would say the only weird part was the, these worms that we were talking about. They're long worms. They're called glycera worms, and they they actually do have teeth. And they do some uh, extreme close-ups of the worms in the movie, going "woo," and you see these teeth. Um, so they actually have teeth. Rick Baker, the famous makeup artist, who had done, um, you know. Planet of the Apes and all, Werewolf in London, all these great things. But he came to do the worms in the guy's face, you know, coming through the guy's face. And also there's a scene where I'm supposed to be bitten by a worm and pull it, pull it out of my arm. So they built a sleeve, basically a skin sleeve that looked like my arm and, you know, a little blood around a hole. And then they came to stick the real worm into this thing so that I would pull it out. And that was the only time I got skeeved out because... You know, so they put this worm, a live worm, into the hole in this thing, the tail just sticking out. And then the action is, on action, uh, pull it out, you know. Two cameras going, one tight on the worm, one on me. uh, And so, you know, put it in. And and now this thing is under this thing in my arm going, nick, 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 biting at my arm. And that was kind of skeevy while we waited for them to yell action, you know. Um, Other than that, uh, it was just a lark. From start to finish, as most horror movies are, you know, because we're all in on the joke. I made a movie called "He Knows You're Alone." The killer in that movie, uh, demented, running around with a knife and killing people. He was a Jesus in Godspell as well. That's in another company. So here you had me playing the hero, one Jesus, and this demented guy playing the <laughs> sweetest guy in the world. So I can't look at that movie without laughing. Ah, look at Tom being demented. It's hilarious. <laughs> That's an interesting idea that sometimes it can be funny making a comedy, but it's not really scary making a horror movie. Yeah, truly. I mean, I don't know about some of the, I don't know, you know, I, I'm sure The Exorcist was unsettling to all those people who had to work it because it's just unsettling. But the two horror movies that I made, three if you count Cruising, the, the two horror movies I made were, um, were just a, a, a hilarious uh, festival every day because it's so <laughs> silly, not real. And I, I appreciate, Matthew, that it was a rare opportunity to ask that question. But even though I, I wasn't yeah. involved in Squirm, I have had jobs where I felt like I was working with three million worms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my final question is, is an obvious one, actually. I'm just curious, in all your experiences and travels, have you come across people from the Marxist universe? You know, their family, friends, or 
co-stars, whatever? No, I, in, in the world of Six Degrees of Separation, um, I, I have had... Uh, Maxine Marks was a casting person, so mm-hmm. I, I knew her slightly, and, you know, mm-hmm. I, I always wanted to ask her about Chico and, you know, never summoned the courage because I was there to audition for something, and I thought, will this, mm-hmm. like, prejudice her against me in my audition? Will I not get it? So I never did. Mm-hmm. Um, Arthur Marks. I, I met him a number of times through a mutual friend, but he was also getting quite old, and, you know... You, know, you want to ask these people personal stories, and then when you actually encounter them, you don't. So that was, in, in the world of six degrees, that was one degree, one degree. I was a friend of Cavett's for, I still am a friend of Cavett's, I haven't talked to him in a while, but I did a play with, mm-hmm. with Dick, and I've known Dick for some time. And, um, you know, of course, his, his interviews with Groucho are legendary, and his effects on Groucho. So we would, we would trade, uh, I wouldn't trade, I would just listen. He, he gave uh, uh, Groucho stories uh, during breaks and rehearsal and stuff. And uh, Marvin Hamlish was a friend from years, years, and years ago. And Marvin went on the road with Groucho and would play piano for him in his personal appearances. I remember, I do remember Marvin saying that the great thing about it is that Groucho was frequently to the same show, but at any, at any time you never knew he might go completely off, off book. You know, I mean, he might tell a story or do something and turn to him and say, "Hey, why don't you play a little of this?" You know, and he and he said, "I had to be ready for anything because." That improvisational sort of spirit uh, was mu- very much still with Groucho at that point. Well, my uh, my final question was about something that I recall you saying to me, Don, in 2016 when we were working on the highlights reel for I'll Say She Is, when we were talking about the Marx Brothers. And you said with particular emphasis, you said one thing that made the Marx Brothers special is that they genuinely appealed to all ages. And that we hear that a lot. It's always claimed for things, ah, fun for the whole family, uh, all ages. (laughs) But actually, uh, particularly in this age of niche interests that we're living in now, where there's such specific small audiences for things, it's actually quite rare that there's anything in the realm of entertainment that um, is equally likely to captivate, you know, an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old. Now, I guess we could call it universal. Um, and I just wonder if you would talk about that a little bit, the, the, the way the Marx Brothers and, and some other great artists, too, uh, have the ability to transcend uh, every division. Well, it starts with humanity. You know, we talked about vulnerabilities, you know, in the beginning and, and a comedy with heart. So it starts with humanity. There's something so kind of uh, across the four of them and particularly across the three of them, but really across the four of them that is so human about them. So A, they are relatable, uh, what would you call them? Not stereotypes, they are relatable archetypes, in a way, human archetypes, in a very mythological and true way. Um, at the same time, if you're eight, and, you're, and you don't get, I came on the Atlantic auction, you don't know what that joke means, because you're eight, but you've got Harpo, you've got the music, you know, there, there, there are a lot of things in, in every, any given Marx Brothers movie for an eight-year-old. Uh, there are silent, whole silent sections of every movie that any, any age will laugh at, find funny. You know, whether it's the mirror bit or whatever it is, you know, you, um, you consider yourself an intellect, you're going to appreciate Groucho on a bunch of levels. If you uh, are a musician, you're going to appreciate the artistry of of uh, Harpo at the harp or Chico at the piano. There is literally, as they used to say, something for everybody. 
in any Marx Brothers movie. So that's what the thing. And the other thing is, again, the thing we're always talking about, and we're talking about now, all through this, is the, the spirit of anarchy. Children, particularly, are going to appreciate, because everybody becomes the adults, except for the Marx Brothers, in their movies. And they are the bad kids at the party. They are the kids who won't stop. They're ripping up the things out of the boxes, the mailboxes in the hotel. And, you know, that, I think, particularly appeals to kids from, you know, six to 60. It appeals to the child and all of us, the thumbing the nose kind of thing. And finally, and I know this, I don't mean this to sound sappy at all, but they were brothers. Mm -hmm. They were a family. And even though you know they're playing different parts and in these different shows, they're not playing that they're brothers. We all know they're the Marx brothers. And there is this, I always say there's nothing so affecting as watching a community of artists work knowing that they're a community, whether it's a community formed around material that makes them a community, if it's a theme that makes them a community, or if it's an actual fact they are a community. Offstage, they're a community, whether it's a dance troupe, whether it's Palabolus, or it's you know the World Shakespeare Company, or it's the Marx Brothers, the Beatles. They are a group, they're a unit, and there's something about watching a unit perform that says, in community, we are powerful in community we are loving in community we are successful in community we shine um, there's something generous about working watching people work together and i think that's intrinsically about what live theater is about because you join that community the audience becomes its own community for that night with that community on stage this is a powerful powerful theme particularly now when after the pandemic and, you know, the divisiveness of political structures has made us not feel like we're part of a community, um, that we're alone, that we're separate, that we're in our room, we don't want to get sick, you know, that is still as powerful a statement as any I can think of. And that's why the Marx Brothers will always endure, because this is a basic human need for community. Oh, well, what better note than that to end on? Uh, Don, it's always uh, such a treat to talk to you, and I'm so happy to you be able too. to share this treat with uh Thanks, guys. Listeners. This was uh, an honor, believe me, and uh, I- I'm delighted that you asked. Thank you. Thank you, Don. It's been great. As always, we want to thank our Patreon supporters for making all of this possible and keeping the show going. And I can report that this morning, in fact, the morning that we are recording episode 61, the September postcard just came back from the printer. The ninth postcard just came back from the printer. This is one designed by a guest artist, a guest artist familiar to our listeners. He's also a past guest on the show. It's Brad Solo who designed this postcard, and probably that fact will clue our listeners in as to the theme of this particular postcard. Uh, All of our subscribers at the top four levels will receive uh, this uh, ninth postcard in the mail, probably around the same time this episode reaches your ears. So thank you for your support. And anyone listening who isn't a Patreon subscriber but would like to be, all you have to do is go to MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com, click the big orange Patreon button on the upper right corner of the page, and for as little as $3 a month, you can be part of it all. Uh, The final honor that we confer upon our guests is the privilege of selecting our closing music. Is there a a piece of music from the Marx universe or the Scardino universe that uh, you'd like to go out on? 
Do you have Hello, I Must Be Going? It's my, I mean, it's a, it's a one, great one to exit on, but it's my favorite. It's my favorite Groucho tune. Absolutely. Bob will take it up and, and tack it on. Captain Spaulding, Rittenhouse Manor is entirely at your disposal. Well, I'm certainly grateful for this magnificent washout, a turnout. And uh, now I'd like to say a few words. Hello, I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. La la. For my sake, you must stay. If you should go away, you'd spoil this party. I am through it. I'll stay a week or two. I'll stay the summer through, but I am telling you, I must be going. I'll do anything you say. In fact, I'll even stay. But I must be going. Marx Brothers Council Podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on X. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time! interesting bit of Lennon trivia that's uh, bubbled up to the surface lately is that the song that everyone's waiting for now that's been uh, worked on by Paul and George, I I guess, during the anthology period. uh, Some of us have heard that song because of your show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) That's true. Uh, Because Yoko had given me this demo. She said, I don't know what what you want. You might want to do something with this. And there were like three or four demos that had never been recorded. Mm -hmm. And one of them was... uh, well, I think what they're calling now and then, and in the show we called "I Don't Want to Lose You," but it was because uh, oh, okay. it made more sense, sort of story-wise. Uh, and, and she said he had gone back and forth about what the what the what the title was going to be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was the premiere of that, and and now everybody's going, "Wow, something you've never heard before." <laughs> um, years ago, when I was an actor, I was in a play by, oh golly, what's his name? Uh, the director was Keith Hack. The writer was, anyway, it was a play called Scribes. It was a hit in London. It was at the Manhattan Theatre Club and it was Manchester uh, newspaper. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we had to uh, come up with Manchester accent, you know, get very northern, glottal stuff with it all. You know, but fortunately I'd been a Beatles fan, so I had them all down, you know. Mm-hmm. I had John in his nose up here. I had Ringo much further in his nose. <laughs> and then, you know, you, George in the back of the throat like that and it's all very <laughs> scouse, you know. Oh, and, uh, and then finally... Um, Paul is all the frontal, you know, it's all coming right from the front, very much like Paul. Man, it? where were you when they were doing those cartoons? The voices were horrible in those yeah, cartoons, yeah. remember? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody sounded like anybody. <laughs> but, you know, John, it was all, you know, so um, 
I wasn't comparing us to Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. I said what I now said and it was wrong. It was taken wrong. And now it's all this. Now it's all, it was this, all yeah. You got an edge there in Lennon's voice. They didn't quite get that. But that's not my impression of John or any of the Beatles, for that matter. There's nothing like in Noah's impression of Groucho. Well, I don't know. Well, Matthew, we forgot to tell you we're, we're doing a Beatles podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm getting the message. <laughs>